Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. My top priority when I first got to the National ACLU, I thought, was going to be racial justice. Mr. Ira Glasser, head of the American Civil Liberties Union. What years? 78 to 2001. Throughout its existence, the American Civil Liberties Union has defended unpopular causes. Actually, my top priority turned out to be organizational survival. American Nazi party leader Frank Collin has been trying to hold a march through the streets of Skokie, Illinois. The ACLU is opposed to defend the free speech of Nazis. The reaction of the Holocaust survivors was very understandable. You would defend it again today if you had to? Yes. The First Amendment is what permits people to organize for social justice. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. What we just heard is an excerpt from Mighty Ira, a newly released documentary about Ira Glasser, who led the American Civil Liberties Union beginning in the late 1970s and on through its principled heyday for a period of 23 years. As the directors say, Glasser, quote, transformed the organization from a small mom-and-pop operation on the verge of bankruptcy into a civil liberties juggernaut with offices in every state and a $30 million endowment, end quote. Unfortunately, the ACLU has gone in a different direction under Anthony Romero, Glasser's long-serving replacement as ACLU executive director since 2001. Many ACLU critics now complain that the organization has abandoned its original nonpartisan approach to civil liberties in favor of one that prioritizes progressive orthodoxy and overtly political postures. Back in the 1970s, the ACLU famously, or infamously if you prefer, defended the right of neo-Nazis to march in an Illinois town. While the marchers' cause was singularly repellent, argued Glasser, who is Jewish by the way, our most important rights are fully protected only when they are extended to the most reviled elements of our society, including prisoners, accused criminals, and yes, hate mongers. Fighting for civil liberties is never a consistently popular cause, because the people who are most at risk of censorship, surveillance, and unlawful incarceration tend to be those who have no dependable political constituency, either because they are criminals, extremists, religious heretics, or otherwise unsympathetic to the broad public. This helps explain why it is primarily privileged and well-educated progressives who now seem most eager to tear down our classically liberal traditions. In many cases, these are people who have no experience with the criminal justice system and little exposure to anyone who disagrees with their own political opinions. They also happen to be the people who typically lead, fund, and staff the ACLU, the opposite of Glasser, the working-class son of a construction worker. When Glasser took the helm at the ACLU in 1978, he found himself constantly under attack from conservatives, who presented ACLU lawyers as bleeding-heart defenders of criminals and perverts. During the 1988 presidential campaign, in fact, then-Vice President George H.W. Bush accused Democratic rival Michael Dukakis of being, quote, a card-carrying member of the American Civil Liberties Union, end quote. And the ACLU's response to that ad, delivered by actor Burt Lancaster, was nothing short of brilliant. 
I'm Bert Lancaster, and I have a confession to make. I'm a card-carrying member of the ACLU. Now, you know the kind of people who support the ACLU. Radicals like Douglas MacArthur, Dwight Eisenhower, Harry Truman. Listen to what John Kennedy said about the ACLU. The American Civil Liberties Union has played a significant role in defending our basic democratic freedoms. America is a stronger nation for their uncompromising efforts. The ACLU represents everyone. From a mother who thought it was wrong to send her child to a segregated school, to Oliver North. That's right, Oliver North. The ACLU is there to protect everyone's rights. To be sure, no one agrees with everything they've done. But I can't imagine a single American who would disagree with the principle that's the heart and soul of the ACLU. Liberty. Justice. For all. Yet Glasser realized that his problem wasn't just conservatives who demonized the ACLU, but also liberals who had flocked to the organization after Watergate, only to abandon it once they saw that Glasser wasn't a down-the-line liberal activist. Glasser, to his great credit, wasn't interested in keeping those supporters if it meant supporting civil liberties only when it came to causes that were popular on one side of the spectrum. His successor, Romero, on the other hand, seems to have fully given in to that political temptation. The ACLU still champions the rights of prisoners and other traditional civil liberties causes, but a lot of its advocacy now has nothing to do with that core mission. During the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, for instance, the ACLU ran ads comparing the future Supreme Court justice to Bill Cosby. And during the recent controversy at Smith College in Massachusetts, in which dining hall staff were falsely accused of racial profiling, the ACLU, shockingly, came down on the side of the false accuser even after it was clear that the accusations were false, effectively supporting administrators seeking to railroad their own staff. It's literally the opposite of everything that the ACLU once stood for. And it gets worse. One of the most prominent ACLU officials is staff attorney Chase Strangio, a gender activist who publicly advocated for the suppression of a book he happened to dislike, Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage, even telling his Twitter followers that, quote, Stopping the circulation of this book and these ideas is 100% a hill I will die on, end quote. Strangio even referred to the author, who, like Glasser, is Jewish, by the way, as, quote, closely aligned with white supremacists, end quote. Strangio made the same utterly baseless claim against Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling. Strangio, remember, is a lawyer for the ACLU, yet in his rhetoric, he actually echoes the hysterical rhetorical tactics of the conservatives that Glasser once had to contend with in the late 20th century. With me to discuss the ACLU's transformation is Jamie Kirchick, author of a new essay on the subject, In Tablet. Kirchick's numerous awards include the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association Excellence in Student Journalism Award and their Journalist of the Year Award. He is also a fellow with the Brookings Institute in Washington, and the author of the 2017 Yale University Press book, The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. Here are excerpts from our conversation. There are interesting connections between biographical details about Glasser and the things he believed in. You, for instance, linger, as the film does, about his affection for the Brooklyn Dodgers, yeah. which doesn't sound like it has any political aspect, and yet it does. Could you explain that a little bit? So the Brooklyn Dodgers were the first team to break the racial color barrier when they brought Jackie Robinson onto the team in 1947. And this was a big deal in professional sports to have a black player on a team that had only been open to white people. And it caused a lot of problems for the Dodgers. You know, when they would travel to the South, Robinson was not allowed to sleep in the same hotels as his teammates. He wasn't allowed to eat in the same restaurants. 
Um, and so it became a point of personal pride for Dodgers fans that they were the team that broke the color barrier, and particularly for Ira Glasser, as he, as he tells us in this film and, and when I interviewed him. Um, this was really his first experience of racial discrimination. And he was a young boy, and you know all that he and his friends knew about Jackie Robinson was that he was their hero. He was this amazing player. And they couldn't understand why he would be treated the way he was being treated in certain parts of the country. And so it kind of awakened him to racial injustice. And then, of course, you know, American sports rivalries being very rabid, and particularly in New York City, um, the Yankees were the third to the last team to bring on black players. And so this, you know, even more, this 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 became a sort of political issue. And, and the Yankees were portrayed as, you know, the party of, as, as Ira says in the film, you know, oil depletion allowances. That's what they cared about. You know, it was the party of the of the of the wealthy and the, and the, and the privileged and the Brooklyn Dodgers were the team of, you know, scrappy, working class, multiracial New York. And this was very much what the ACLU was and how and how Ira Glasser, what he saw the ACLU of, of his era of being. It was, a, it was a scrappy underdog organization. I think at one point you say that Glasser himself, his father was a construction worker, is that right? Yeah. Glasser grew up, I think it was the Flatbush section of Brooklyn? Yeah. You describe his upbringing as sort of rough and tumble, and one advantage of that, from what I gather, is that he developed this faith in people's ability to sort things out yeah. if they got in a room and kind of yelled at each other for a while. It's a somewhat Jewish idea that debate and discussion, even angry discussion, mm -hmm. can be linked in some way to classically liberal values. It's Jewish, but it's also, there is a real sense, I think, of kind of working class pragmatism behind it, which is what the left in America at least used to have. You used to have more working class people, and there used to be much less of a disparity, right, between the privileged people who ran our institutions, whether it was the CIA or, or who were politicians or at Harvard University. They came into contact or they served in the military, right? That was a great bonding activity. And we had military conscription in this country well into the 1950s, maybe even later, actually. And so I think it was sort of a faith in the common man, you could say. And so growing up on the streets of Brooklyn, the parents were all working. But it's more of a, of a kind of proletarian, common sense faith, right? That we don't need bureaucrats and people on high telling us what we can and cannot know and what we can and cannot do. And I think that's really missing from all of the elite institutions today, where they basically become credentialing organizations to kind of perpetuate themselves. And you actually sort of get socialized into this elite, right? You know, certain gender pronouns and certain using Latinx and all these very abstruse terms and language that you would never know and you would never pick them up unless you went to certain universities. And by the way, I went to Yale and I don't know and understand half these terms. That's how recent this whole great awakening has come about. That is so foreign to the left that Ira Glass, sorry, Ira Glasser grew up in and you know symbolized. Yeah, and a good time to let people know that we're not talking about the somewhat self-parodic NPR host. <laughs> <laughs> host of uh, This American Life. It's ironic because the snobbery, of course, used to come from often the right side. The Yankees fans to the Dodgers fans, yeah. right? Or, or the... to use the incident you described, you talk about how Glasser had this very interesting odd couple relationship with uh, William F. Buckley, mm -hmm. who was like very much a patrician conservative. And there's this one episode you describe where 
Glasser actually took him to go eat, I think, a Nathan's hot dog. Yeah. And they showed up in Buckley's limousine. Because whatever you want to say about the patrician snobs of conservative yore, they owned their snobbery. Yeah. Unlike progressive snobs who imagine that they're social justice warriors, but spend all their time beating down on people who don't have three degrees. Yeah. But I digress. You have a line in your piece that the ACLU's founding principles were essentially America's founding principles. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, the ACLU exists to defend the Constitution, and the Constitution is the founding document of America. And obviously, we haven't lived up to those principles. Uh, It took 150 years after the founding of the country to abolish slavery. We had to fight a war over it. And I say this not as a partisan of the ACLU. um, Even in its earlier form, there were positions that I disagreed with them on. And I think that's the whole purpose of the ACLU is that you're very few people are going to agree with them on everything. But if you're going to take a very strict defense of the Constitution, which is what the ACLU purports to do, and that's what it purported to do when it was founded, then those are the founding principles of the United States, the right, the belief in free speech and free association and freedom of religion. That's the First Amendment. The whole ACLU and the Second Amendment is a whole other debate. And the Second Amendment is a, is a debate among constitutional scholars. I'm not going to get into that here. But the Constitution exists as a document that is meant to protect individual rights and individual liberties from the government or from tyrannical majorities, the rights of minorities, the rights of the individual. And that's what makes it a revolutionary, unique document in world history. I believe it's that spirit that the ACLU was founded to defend. And it was formed in the period after World War One, when we had the first Red Scare. Most people only know about the second one with Joe McCarthy, but we had a we had a Red Scare in the in the late 1910s, early 1920s. Which in some ways was worse. People were thrown in jail. Oh, much worse, much worse. Thousands of people, uh, the Palmer Raids, you know, publications and newspapers were banned. And that's when the ACLU was founded to defend people who were very unpopular, people who were anarchists, who were socialists, who were supporters of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, who were pacifists who opposed American entry into World War One, and that's what the ACLU was, was formed to defend. Up until very recently, progressives, which are the people who basically supported the ACLU, leftists, liberals, whatever you want to call them, they didn't have power, right? So in the 1950s and 60s, you had civil rights activists, you had gay activists, you had women's libbers. None of these people were powerful. They weren't even powerful within institutions that we now think of as being liberal. You know, the universities, they were just starting to make their way, right? In newspapers, in the mass media, you could say they were sort of center left, but they were very establishment. They weren't left wing or progressive. And so for all that time, that they were out of power. I think it it just made sense naturally for people on the, on the left to support the ACLU and to support free speech, even for very unpopular people, because most of the time, almost all the time, actually, the people who are being screwed by speech restrictions and by clamping down on marches and protests and who are having their phones tapped, all that was mostly left-wingers, right? And it's only in the past couple of years, I think, maybe decade, 15 years, you could say that, and increasingly, especially in the past few years, that the left has really, and, and, and by the left, I really mean progressives, because there's different shades to the left right now, and I want to distinguish between sort of classical liberals. Well, you and I would have been called left-wing 10 years ago. Yeah, or I think we're classical liberals, right? But now those people, the progressives, now have power. They now have power, really, when you think of it, every institution, every major institution, with the exception of perhaps... Liberty University, okay, a National Review magazine, right? With, 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 with the exception of sort of explicitly conservative institutions, the left now dominates. And so now that they dominate, they don't really see the need 
to protect unpopular voices. Very new. It's a very new phenomenon. And now a message from Blinkist, the app that distills the essence from over 4,000 best-selling nonfiction books and brings them to you in 15-minute text and audio explainers. As part of my job at Quillette, I need to be conversant about what books my readers and listeners are talking about, in part because a lot of the authors of those books end up on this podcast. But life is busy. Blinkist lets me dive into a topic quickly and find out how to deploy my reading time best. Blinkist also has teamed up with popular podcast creators to blink those podcasts for you too. And yes, the company uses the word blink as a verb like that. It's a thing. By blinking a podcast using a feature called shortcasts, you can get to the heart of an episode quickly, complete with high quality audio. You can jump right in on the go during your commute, at the gym, around the house, or even download to listen offline. 15 million people are already using Blinkist to broaden their knowledge in 27 nonfiction categories, including self-improvement, personal growth, management, leadership, and mindfulness. And like I've told you before, the length of a typical Blinkist abridgment is just 15 minutes, about the length of time it takes me to walk my dog. Some of my recent favorites include The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Weingard, Becoming by Michelle Obama, and The AI Economy by Roger Boodle. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. The generic phenomenon is this. The side that controls the commanding heights of culture, they're the ones who want to lock in the status quo. Mm -hmm. If you think you have a 60-40 advantage, it doesn't even have to be a 90-10 advantage. If you're leading the game, you want the ref to blow the whistle. When the conservatives had their moral majority, they wanted their flag-burning amendment. They wanted to shut down what they regarded as pervert art or whatever they called it. There was a whole thing about heavy metal and rap lyrics. In the 90s, I believe, right? The late 80s. We had to censor those. Now the shoe's on the other foot, but it's not inherent to these political movements. It's if you think you have the advantage, you want to shut the other side down. It really should be inherent, I think, to liberalism and to people on the left not to do that. I, I agree in practice that's what happens. But you could make an argument. You know, it doesn't surprise me, frankly, when conservatives are calling for censorship because they're the ones who believe in upholding, you know, traditional old standards and they don't want the youth to be corrupted. I think there really is something inherent in liberalism. It's in the founding documents. It's in John Stuart Mill that you believe in freedom and freedom of speech and freedom of expression. So it's, it's I think it's a betrayal of liberalism, small l liberalism, in a way that it is not of conservatism and certainly not American conservatism. When I was researching some of the ACLU's history in preparation for this interview, I came across this great video that the ACLU made. This was in 1988. I played it in the intro. George H.W. Bush, in the style of conservatism at the time, he had attacked Michael Dukakis, his Democratic rival. You're a card-carrying ACLU member. And he meant this as an insult. The ACLU, to its credit, rolled with it and put out this PSA where Burt Lancaster 
popular actor at the time, said, I'm a card-carrying ACLU member too. And then he said something really interesting. He said, no one agrees with everything the ACLU does. And he said that really casually. And that was, to me, the most striking line because the ACLU today, and I'm guessing most activist organizations, would be horrified to admit that anything they did was out of line with orthodoxy. Putting aside the ACLU, which we'll get back to, is it possible for a progressive organization, any progressive organization, in the current climate of heresy hunting, which is facilitated by social media, to even theoretically posture on the idea none of our supporters will agree with everything they do? The whole premise for a lot of these organizations is everyone either does or should agree with us 100% of the time on every issue. That's a good question. And it does seem that there's been this sort of conformity that's been spreading. On the right too. Yes. Trump cultists had to agree with everything Trump said, even the stuff that contradicted the other stuff. Yes. Although I would say that, and again, this is my little rarefied world, conservative media, I think, is more eclectic and diverse and willing to tolerate dissent. The losing side of a culture war is always more tolerant of dissent because they need the bigger tent. Mm. In the same way that the guerrilla groups who want to take down the evil empire, they make common cause, but as soon as they occupy the capital, that's when they start fighting with each other, right? Yeah. I mean, with the ACLU, it's fascinating. I didn't even realize, I didn't have room for this in my essay, and I didn't even realize it while I was writing it, but apparently the ACLU has come out in favor of canceling student debt. They've come out in favor of just a whole laundry list of causes that really have absolutely nothing to do with the defense of civil rights and civil liberties. There's this journalist, Michael Tracy, who did a compilation of tweets. I think he did the last 100 tweets from the ACLU account. I think something like 60 out of 100 had to do with trans issues, which is a whole, that's a whole Quillette podcast in and of itself. But like the rest, I think there were only two that had to do with like due process and free speech. All the other ones were basically just like a laundry list of sort of progressive action items. Lobbying on behalf of trans rights is not inconsistent with the ACLU's mandate. Well, it depends what you mean by trans rights. If you mean that trans people shouldn't be discriminated against, then absolutely. And I think most Americans would agree with that. If you're getting into other questions such as you know, high school sports, prisons, I mean, that's there should be room for debate on those issues. There isn't anymore because people who express opinions that stray from the orthodoxy are attacked as being transphobic, which I think is really unfortunate. Well, and, and the example you gave, a staff attorney for the ACLU, Chase Strangio, I think that's how you pronounce it, the staff attorney just casually tweeted out that at least one book he didn't like just should be suppressed. Yeah. He basically said, we need to suppress this book. He then, I think he deleted the tweet because he feared being misunderstood even though I think the meaning was pretty clear. He then called J.K. Rowling, white supremacist yeah. adjacent, on zero evidence. Yeah. The stuff you were saying about student debt, I'll give them a pass on student debt because that's at least irrelevant to the civil liberties thing. Right. But supporting censorship is literally diametrically opposed to the core ACLU mandate. I said in the piece, it's like a, it's like a carnivore joining the people for the ethical treatment of animals. Is there any other progressive group that flouts its raison d'etre? Are, are you aware of any group like that? Mm. That's a good question. Uh, you put me on the spot. A, a very egregious example of the past couple of weeks was a group called GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. They've compiled a list of homophobes and transphobes, and included on it is, is Jesse Single, who you wrote a very good piece about, uh, who I've known for a long time. And it's such an, as a gay person, it, it, I almost feel personally at fault, or like I have to apologize, you know, that, that an organization that would claim to speak for me 
would put someone whom I know to be a decent person who is the furthest thing from a homophobic or transphobic bigot, put them on a list alongside Pat Buchanan and all these other terrible people. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Anthony Romero. ACLU is kind of interesting because I think over the last almost 50 years, they've basically had two people in charge, executive directors is the title. One was Glasser, who was the subject of that film. And then I think in 2001, Glasser was succeeded by Romero. There was a former senior official at the ACLU who wrote a whole book about how Romero has sold out. Wendy Kaminer. And yeah. curious about the backstory here. Often in cases like this, the outgoing executive, this would be Glasser, take some role in picking or at least advising on his successor were there warning bells that this guy was just not consistent in his views with the aclu core mission i'm not as much of an expert on the kind of internal debates that happened in that period glasser told me i didn't print this but glasser told me that romero was very effusive in praise of him and he saw, saw him almost as like a father figure that's what he told him when he was taking on the reins of the organization but I mean, just symbolically, both of these figures tell us a lot, right? So you have Ira Glasser, who, by the way, does not have a law degree. People mistake, they often mistake the leader of the ACLU has to be a lawyer. And usually they are, but Ira Glasser did not have a law degree. But again, you know, scrappy, working class Jewish kid from Brooklyn. Robert Kennedy is his... He met Robert Kennedy. He met Robert Kennedy, but unlike many liberals at the time who were willing to forgive Robert Kennedy's past working for Joe McCarthy, which is something you don't hear much about today. Robert Kennedy partisans were adamant in trying to make people forget that when he ran for president. He tried to remade, remake himself as a as a progressive liberal, but he got his start in politics working as a, as a, as a lawyer alongside Roy Cohn, by the way, on, on Joe McCarthy's committee. But that's Ira Glasser, right? That's the background he comes from. And then you have Anthony Romero, who, again, you know, he's gay, he's Hispanic, okay? So he ticks the sort of identity boxes. But what's his background? You know, law school grad, law professor now, I think, but he was a Ford Foundation executive, right? So he goes, he comes from this world as sort of elite liberal philanthropy. Can you tell us a little about the Ford Foundation? Henry Ford, who was an anti-Semite and uh, <laughs> creator of the Ford automobile, created a foundation, which I'm going to cite my former boss, who, who may have been your former boss as well, John O'Sullivan. He was my boss in 1998. Yeah, he was my boss at Radio Free Europe, and he has what's called O'Sullivan's Law, which is any institution which is not founded as being explicitly conservative will turn left-wing over time. And he points to philanthropies, and in particular, the Ford Foundation, right, which is started by this industrialist anti-Semite, which is not, you know, in defense of him. It's just to sort of show you how these things happen. The Ford Foundation now is, you know, one of the largest funders of left-wing causes, you know, that's where he comes from. And, and what is that background? It's it's among rich people. If you spend too much time around rich people and trying to please rich people, I think it can be very corrosive. And now, a commercial message for those of you looking to add Bitcoin to your investment portfolio or retirement account. And I realize that this is a confusing subject. I remember the first time I got Bitcoin. I walked into a convenience store that had the Bitcoin logo, went up to a kind of reverse ATM, fed in some bills, and received, in return, a long series of numbers and letters. Then I spent an hour trying to figure out how to feed those numbers and letters into a Bitcoin wallet on my phone. I wanted to invest in cryptocurrencies, but surely there had to be a better way. And that's what brings me to BitTrust IRA, a seamless, secure, and easy way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. BitTrust IRA stores your private keys with military-grade encryption. 
They have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investment and unlimited trades. They also offer what I'm told are the lowest trading fees in the industry. Many crypto assets have been great performers this year, and some analysts will tell you they're a great way to start building intergenerational wealth. For those looking to invest, skip the convenience store and go to bittrustira.com slash quillette to learn more. For a limited time, Bittrust IRA is waiving the sign-up fee for Quillette podcast listeners, a $50 value. Go to bittrustira.com slash quillette, B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. And now, back to our podcast. The ACLU people of Glasser's era, Arya Nair, um, you know, Wendy Kaminer, they were almost comically opposed to rich people. It was like, we're not going to raise money at levels of higher than a $5,000 donation because then we're sellouts, right? If we try to cater to these rich people, we'll have sort of their pet projects and they all think they're brilliant, right? Because, because they have a lot of money. Therefore, they are experts on X, Y, and Z. And it's like, no, you, you discovered a very clever way to make a shoe or, you know, you created this company that sells widgets. You know, it doesn't mean that you know anything on on the Fourth Amendment. And I think that's really important to have that sort of skepticism of the wealthy and wealth, that it doesn't automatically confer status or brilliance. And that, if I have to point of one major difference between the left of yesteryear and today, it's that. It's that the left of yesteryear was really um, inherently suspicious of money and people who had it, right? There's that famous line, was it Lincoln Steffens, behind every great fortune is a great crime, which isn't necessarily true, but you know what, they're there, but there's something to that attitude, right? Whereas today it's the complete opposite. The whole class analysis, which is what, what started the left, I'm not a Marxist, but I certainly think that the class analysis of society is much more, at least today in America, is much more accurate an assessment of what's going on. You had this passage in your article, and I want to read it. In 2017, the ACLU of Virginia, so this is the state-level ACLU organization, had supported the right of white nationalists to rally in Charlottesville. But once the rally turned violent, the national ACLU circulated an internal document with new case selection guidelines, stipulating before agreeing to take a free speech case, the ACLU would now consider the potential effect on marginalized communities, whether the speech advances the goals of speakers whose views are contrary to our values, and the structural and power inequalities in the community in which the speech will occur. Those guidelines could be used to essentially restrict 70 or 80% of the cases you might get. I, every possible controversial statement imaginable will have some, quote, potential effect on marginalized communities. Basically saying, internally at least, the ACLU is now a progressive outlet. We don't take on cases that are off message to our progressive politics. Has there been any talk to somebody setting up a real ACLU, like the kind of ACLU that originally was? Or has that boat already sailed because the kind of people you would recruit for that organization, within six weeks, they just turn it into what the ACLU is now? Well, I believe a new group was founded just a couple of weeks ago, and I'm forgetting the name. Maybe it's the, wait, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, FAIR. I think Glenn Lowry's on the board, Sean McWhorter, who I'm sure are both very familiar with your listeners. These people have both been on the Quillette podcast. What you just described is the conservative version of what's happening now. 
I'm not sure I want these groups to be explicitly anti-woke or explicitly conservative. Like, is, is mm. it even possible to create a group that caters to both sides of the spectrum through enforcing classic liberal values? Like, is that even a realistic project anymore? Good question. You know, maybe the ACLU as we know it. And by the way, the ACLU has gone through transformations. You know, in the 1940s and 50s, they were heavily criticized for, in some senses, collaborating with the FBI in terms of weeding out communists or fellow travelers. Put that aside, though, I wonder to what extent was the ACLU a, a creation and a creature of its time, right? It was created in this period of harsh government repression, right? And that's maybe maybe that's the major difference right now is that most of the repression of speech that we're talking about is not government, right? It's private sector, it's in the media, it's academia, right? It's institutions that are not the government. And maybe that has something to do with it. But the ACLU you know, was founded by people during this period of intense government repression. You could say its greatest moments, right, occurred when the government was was shutting down people's freedoms. And so there's the Skokie case, right? That's probably the most famous case Surprised we actually haven't mentioned it earlier in our conversation, but that was when a group of Nazis, uh, neo-Nazis, wanted to march in an Illinois suburb that was not only a pleasant bucolic community, it was also one with a lot of Holocaust survivors, and that's why they chose it. And you know, you had the image of these Jewish ACLU lawyers defending the right of Nazis to march. You can't get a better distillation, right, of what. American liberalism in its classic sense, right, or the ACLU is meant to meant to be, then, you know, Jewish lawyers, you know, confident in their values, confident in their status as Jews in America, defending the First Amendment. They weren't defending Nazis. This is what Glasser was very adamant about. We're not defending Nazis. We're defending the First Amendment. Now, I feel like, you know, most of the, the outrages that you and I, you know, write about and we read about, it's not the government, right? It's, it's tech platforms. I went to Milwaukee two years ago. It was a conference. It was basically like sort of dissident YouTubers. It was called mm. MythCon, if I remember. I think I read that, actually. Yeah. They were talking about censorship and what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say, the dangers of thought control. And I remember I looked over my notes I put this in my piece. Not a single speaker talked about the threat of government censorship. Not one. It was all about YouTube demonetizing them, Twitter, Facebook. If you talk to a 20-year-old, to them, censorship is like, I got thrown off my, my subreddit. And the entire apparatus of the ACLU was built to attack government overreach. They don't know what to do. You know, if Twitter right. says, oh, we're getting rid right. of this guy's account. First of all, they don't have anyone inside Twitter. It yes. can't be litigated because Twitter doesn't right. have a court of Twitter. And even right. if they did litigate it, right. the kind of people who now work at the ACLU would be on Twitter's side. Right. So in a way, you could say that the, the original purpose of the ACLU has maybe become somewhat obsolete and just in the sense that for now, most of the anti-free speech actions are not taken by the government. But that doesn't mean it couldn't change. And we still need to be vigilant about government abuses. And I know you know about this because your 2017 book was about right-wing populism. Like in Hungary, what Orban has done, or Poland, telling people you can't publish material that discredits Poland in regard to its collaboration with the Nazis in World yeah, War II. Yeah, it's happening in those countries. And I am someone who uh, is wary of sort of the uh, America is becoming a fascist country genre of writing. But... That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned. But it's just ironic because in Poland and Hungary, you're not allowed to say my own country is garbage. In left-wing intellectual and academic circles, 
you're compelled to say that. <laughs> Depending on where you live, your subculture, often you either have to say your country is garbage or you're not allowed to say your country is garbage. You should be able to say both and not be compelled to say either. You should be able to say whatever you want. I look on the ACLU and on their Twitter account. They do this weird thing where some of the tweets are, are substantive at solitary yeah. confinement. I mean, they do talk about legitimate, important civil liberties issues. We should acknowledge that. Yeah. But then they'll just have this weird tweet where it's like trans people are people and they'll just repeat it 15 times. Mm -hmm. And those things will get 20,000 likes and retweets, which suggests to me the ACLU does have apparently on social media grassroots support. It gets millions of dollars. It has a huge endowment. Your piece has been up on the tablet website for a couple of days. Has an army of ACLU supporters come after you? No, and I think that's because... It was probably too long for the, <laughs> just for the people for the people who spend their day tweeting and liking things on Twitter. I don't think they read much beyond the headline. Right. As I read your piece, it reminded me of a piece I read in The New Yorker a couple of years ago on, I'd say, a roughly analogous erosion of values at the SPLC, Southern Poverty Law Center. Oh, yes. They recently have changed their views on black nationalist organizations. Right. Those are fine now. <laughs> I think the SPLC, this has been longer in coming. I mean, I remember, I think it was an article by, an article in Harper's Magazine in the mid-90s, maybe, called The Church of Morris Dees, and who was the founder of it. And it, you know, it revealed that the SPLC had like tens of millions of dollars in offshore bank accounts. The New Yorker article by Bob Moser, almost exactly two years ago, The Reckoning of Morris Dees and the Southern Poverty Law Center, and Morris Dees was... He was B2'd, I think, yeah. And he co-founded the SPLC. Yes, and made a lot of money doing so. How do you make money creating a nonprofit? It's a good question. It's a good question. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. You and Ira Glasser, you're in good yeah. company. Yeah. James Kirchick's article in Tablet is called The Disintegration of the ACLU. Jamie, thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you for having me. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.